You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back once again a frequent guest of the podcast, Peter Hyatt. Peter is pastor of the Sanctuary in Denver. To find them, just do a Google search on Sanctuary Denver Church, and that will take you to the sanctuarydenver.org. And there you will find all kinds of wonderful resources. There's also a podcast of Peter's sermons, and look for that podcast under the title, The Sanctuary Downtown forward slash Relentless Love. Peter is a preacher's kid who's been around the Reformed theological tradition his whole life, and this has enabled him to see the strengths and weaknesses of the tradition and to see a vision of the grace of God, which is not limited either in its availability to all or in its power to save. Peter has been preaching through the book of Romans with his congregation and also talking through many of the chapters of Romans with us on the podcast. Today, we talk together about chapter eight of Romans. Welcome back, Peter Hyatt, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Hello, David. Thank you. Hey, could I mention real quick that if they want resources and sermons, the best site to go to is relentless-love.org. And that's where we have a lot of the resources, particularly on these topics of Grace Saves All. Romans is kind of a hard book to read because Paul's argument is complex, and we're usually trying to read it through, well, a kind of a tradition that may have a strong opinion about what Romans already means. So it's hard to sort of get that out of your mind and to just kind of get a fresh take on Romans. And there's a lot at stake in the book of Romans because there's a big question in people's minds is, well, how do I know that I'm saved or how do I get saved? And Romans seems to be the place that Everybody kind of wants to go to answer that question. So there's a lot at stake at stake in this discussion of the book of Romans. Yeah, the book of Romans is such an amazing book, and it's hard to jump in and uh, just talk about one chapter. It's a little bit like opening the Lord of the Rings and starting to talk about chapter 20 or something mm-hmm. <laughs> without context. And then I think it's particularly hard if you grew up in a society that told you, that the Lord of the Rings is actually uh, a law book and it's not a story, but if you read it, you can figure out how to save yourself or something. And I think we all go to the book of Romans with this assumption that it's um, something like a law book that's telling one story. But the more you sit with it, the more you begin to realize, but Paul's not talking about that story. So Chapter 8 has been particularly meaningful in my life because when I was in college, I went to some, um, I don't know, one of those college events, you know, everybody's raw, Mm -hmm. raw, and decided we'd all memorize one chapter of the Bible, and Romans 8 was that chapter. So uh, I remember I memorized it back in college, and I couldn't recite the whole thing now, but it's haunted me my whole life, I think, in a wonderful way, because the things that Paul said just didn't fit in the old narrative that I have been told that maybe they fit with the things I knew about Jesus from Sunday school when I was a little kid and things I knew about Jesus with my dad. But the things that I had learned kind of from 
the evangelical community that I had become a part of just didn't seem to fit. And I think the the story that the world is telling is that you um, need to get knowledge of good and evil and then apply that knowledge to your life in order to make yourself right. And when you think about that, you go, gosh, that sounds familiar. That some, Somebody is telling us that. And yet I think the story in Romans is really different. And that is that God makes you right. And so in, in chapter eight, I think this really, um, I don't know, reveals itself, manifests itself, that, that, that we will be judged, but we're not going to be judged by an earthly judge that looks to see what's wrong and what's right as if they didn't know and that person lets some in and others not in, but we'll be judged by our creator and this is his judgment. So the, the judgment that Paul is hearing, I think, is the same judgment that Nicodemus the Pharisee heard in John chapter 3 when Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again or you must be begotten from above. And Jesus uses the word must, and that's God's judgment. Um, so God is in the business of creating humanity in his image. And uh, to be finished, we must be born from above. And if you read Romans chapter 8, trying to fit in a bunch of legal ideas, I think before too long, you realize that Romans chapter 8 is kind of like a almost a legal argument against Romans chapter eight being a legal document. <laughs> and it's a story of uh, God's judgment playing out in history. So um, yeah, it's fascinating chapter in an utterly fascinating book. And it is important because it's probably the one book where, you know, Paul sets out writing kind of a theological, something of a theological treatise and by theological, I don't, I don't mean legal, but kind of the big picture, the whole story, to a group of people that he's never met before in Rome. Mm -hmm. So, an amazing book. All right. Well, let's go ahead and just we'll just move through it a verse at a time, beginning with verse one. I'll read from the New International Version, and then you can uh, comment from whatever uh, versions are from the original Greek text. So, verse one. Therefore. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's the way I think the ESV and the RSV reads. But just that verse raises all sorts of questions. I mean, for me, as I chewed on that, I, I began to wonder what would life be like if there was no condemnation? <laughs> I mean, how would, how would I live? How would I view myself? At first, it seems rather liberating. And then I started to wonder, would I even know who I am? Because if someone asked me who I am, I kind of judge myself and condemn certain things, elevate other things. And then what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? That's an interesting question. And then this, we're, you know, we just finished 10 in church, preaching, I think I preached three or four sermons on chapter 10. And Paul does a crazy thing in chapter 10. He quotes Romans or no, he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy 30, speaking to the Israelites. And Moses says to the Israelites, the word is uh, in your, uh, what is it? It's in your mouth and in your heart, or in your heart and in your mouth so that you can do it. And then Paul says, well, the word is Christ. So 
Moses is saying, Christ is in your heart and Christ is on your tongue. So you can do Christ, who, as we all know, is doing us. And so when he says those who are in Christ Jesus, in two chapters, he's going to say, well, Christ is even in the Israelites 1500 years before Christmas. So if I'm going to get into Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is already in me, it paints a picture that he's somewhere down there deep inside of me. And he was somewhere down there deep inside of the Israelites 1500 years ago and or now, what, 3,500 years ago in, mm-hmm. in the desert. And then the other thing that's fascinating, and I'll go faster through the other verses, David, but this is jumping in midstream in chapter mm-hmm. eight, is that the sentence begins with therefore. So, I, I think it was Ray Sidman, uh, who was one of my dad's friends. He used to always say, um, you know, he's a Bible expository. He said, Scripture is inspired by God, but I'm convinced that the chapter divisions are inspired by Satan. And, you know, the chapter divisions were placed in the text like a thousand years, something like that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the therefore, if a therefore is there, you got to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. And the therefore follows these verses up above. So, we talked about this a minute and last time in Romans 7, but in order to launch into Romans 8, I think you, you kind of have to look at these verses. So let me just read this real quick and try to tell you what I think is so fascinating about it. Um, and, and the thing that we miss, and, and we, don't, we don't translate this, I think, because it freaks us out a little bit. But in 719, he says, Paul's, you know, talking about his frustrations. He says, I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it or or work it. And we talked before about how the I is like our consciousness or the spirit God breathes into the clay. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it, uh, I find the law, literally, that when I want to do the good, the evil lies close at hand. And now this should, all this language should remind us of the garden, right? And then he writes, for I delight, and the ESV translates it delight, but it's this fascinating word, sunedomai, which means to have pleasure with. He says, for I have pleasure with, and then in the law of God or with the law of God, in my inner man, But I see in my members another law, waging war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of the sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me or who will save me from this, the body of the death? So Paul is, when he says, starts chapter eight, he's dealing with this question, who's going to save me from my outer man? And yet he's also talking about having this inner man, this inner place where he delights with the law, almost as if the law is, is alive. And so in my mind, that reminds me of what Paul says about who, who each one of us are, that we are each a temple. And as you know, Paul knew the old Testament really well. And Paul was a tent maker. So on Easter, I dressed like a prisoner. And, you know, you're always trying to do something as a pastor to make people wake up and pay attention. 
But I thought, well, I, I'm going to talk about the temple. And I think that's the picture in the back of Paul's, Paul's mind. So to be in Christ, I think, is like going into that inner, inner the Holy of Holies, uh, the sanctuary. We call our church the sanctuary, going into the inner sanctuary in the temple. And that inner sanctuary is found inside of each person. So um, I, if you're like me, I, I think you have a similar background, David. You'd read the Old Testament and think, okay, here's these laws. That's That makes some sense. But then there are just massive amounts of the Old Testament devoted to descriptions of the ark, which is in the inner sanctuary, which is in the tabernacle, which turns into this old stone temple. And I used to just read this going, this is so ridiculous and boring. I don't understand why God would spend all this time on the temple until I really took seriously some of the things Paul said. And I said, oh, I'm the temple. <laughs> he's describing me and he's describing uh, my heart. And in the depths of the temple, you know, this inner sanctuary in the book of Hebrews, which I think Paul was involved with, he describes entering that inner sanctuary as entering the age to come. Um, and so the age to come is the place where it is finished. Everything is uh, perfect. It's all good. But the crazy thing about that inner sanctuary is you something had to die to get into that inner sanctuary. And yet somehow God's judgment was in the inner sanctuary, which was this crazy thing. It was the law in stone wrapped in a coffin covered in blood. And the life is in the blood. And there's a seat on top of that ark, that coffin, that is uh, called the mercy seat. And it's between two cherubim, just like the cherubim in the garden. So the picture is that when you go and you remember the cherubim, they guarded the way to the tree of life and Jesus is the life. So the picture in scripture is that that journey into that inner chamber, that inner place is a journey back to the garden. It's a journey to the judgment of God. It's a journey to the heart of God. And when you get there, you are um, in something that is Ionios or of the age to come. And I think Paul is saying that somehow we can go into that place in Christ, even in the depths of our, of our being. So um, on Easter, I set up a tent inside of our old um, sanctuary building and talked about how I, and like this big old stone building that we built. But in the depths of the person that I have made, the Peter Hyatt that I have constructed, that, you know, I sometimes call Mises, there's this little tent. And I can go into the tent. So my consciousness can be in the outer courts, or my consciousness can be in that inner tent. And I described, I set up the pup tent, and I described how I used to go um, backpacking with my dad. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, outside of the tent, at school, wherever I was, I always felt like I was never enough. But I loved to go backpacking with my dad because at night we'd crawl in the tent and he'd hug me and he'd tell me stories and I'd lose myself. And then I'd find myself in my dad's stories. So in the tent, the inner tent and in the pup tent, it just didn't occur to me that I was never enough because I was like in communion with my dad. 
and outside the tent, I was always worried about what had been and what might be. But inside the tent, I was always happy now. This is another way to say it. Outside the tent, I was always trying to be me, but felt like I couldn't be me and always wondered who is me, why is me, what's wrong with me. But inside the tent, I was just, I am who I am with my dad. And I think Paul has a picture in his mind that we are the temple. And you know, the Jews built that giant stone temple around that inner sanctuary that was originally God's tent because he wanted to move with the people. And God destroys that big old um, temple because many times, but uh, it's all about getting to that inner tent. And so when Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, I would, I go, I think, I think the picture is like when I was in that pup tent camping with my dad, there was no condemnation that I was just at home. It's where I was. And I think Paul is going to start painting a picture now that we can commune with our father in heaven uh, or, or with this in the spirit of Jesus somehow in that holy of holies, which is in the temple that is us. Um, and so that's kind of a picture at the start that I don't think many people talk about because we don't take those, that language very seriously, which is, I think, part of the problem of our modern era. We've lost our imagination. And so we, and, we, and, we, and I think we've lost faith that God is really telling a big story that he started telling way back in the beginning. So um, there's there no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think that has something to do with going into that, that someone we enter in to Jesus. And Jesus has a particular relationship with his father um, that, you know, he belongs in that inner tent. Well, in uh, Jonathan Mitchell and his commentary on this notes that the word those is in the dative case. And so then that gives you various renderings such as in, for, and with. And the dative indicates that something is receiving the action. So for me, it's kind of like for those who have awakened and become aware they are receiving this, then they are no longer afraid. Mm -hmm. You're able to live then without fear that doesn't mean that you think, oh, I can do whatever I want. And there are no consequences. It just means that that you know that you are utterly and totally loved, that condemnation or final banishment is not ever the purpose of the Heavenly Father. And so you're sort of, I felt like in, when I was in ministry that I dealt with people who were constantly dealing with salvation anxiety. Yeah, they couldn't. Right. You know, and it was and basically church was kind of like salvation anxiety management. They would come and if they came a lot, they felt pretty good about their salvation. But then if they drifted off and didn't go for a while, then they started to doubt their salvation. So they thought they better come back to make sure they were good, you know. And and so it was kind of this ongoing, constant salvation anxiety. And yeah. there are very few people that seem to ever experience this sense of no condemnation. Right. And I, it's 
it's really tragic. But Paul is in Romans, he's going to go on to talk about Israel as his church and the leadership of Israel. And as a pastor, you know this. If you are the pastor of a church, that really works in your favor. You play off of people's salvation anxiety. I mean, I'm not saying you do, but it, it's very tempting to say, well, yeah, maybe you ought to go on the church retreat because, you know, <laughs> judgment day is coming. And, and maybe you really should give a little more money in the offering. And in that way, I think we abuse God uh, and we abuse people's relationship with God. And the institution has done that for years. But but that's interesting what you said about the dative case and about waking up, because Paul, I think Paul is also painting this picture that the building we build. So this is an important part of the temple. God really builds that inner sanctuary and then he fills it, you know, miraculously with his glory. But it's David who comes along and wants to t- turn the tabernacle into the stone temple. Um, and that it's stone, God gets upset about because stone can't move. And God says, well, I want to move around with my people. And there's this little weird, little interesting argument in Samuel and Kings. Um, but but the, that big stone temple, the picture is that's something we build. And that's like our ego. And Paul, I think, is building this argument throughout Romans. It's in the background. And I think it's throughout scripture that your ego really is an illusion. And, and what's another word for an illusion? Well, it's a dream. It's what you think you're doing that is really nothing. You're, you're having a dream. And in your dream, you are your own creator, savior, and redeemer. And that's what, you know, like I shared with you, that's what I mean by Mises. Jesus means God is salvation. But so much of the time I have faith in Mises, that me is salvation. And that's the story that the word is telling. And so if people say, you know, you're at a party and they say, well, who are you? Well, you tend to talk about your resume and your accomplishments and the things that you've done. And if God was there, he'd be like, oh, stop it. That's not who you are. (laughs) You're my kid (laughs) and I know who you are and you're just beginning to learn who you are. And so that Mises, and this is important for the rest of what we're going to read now, that illusion has to be shattered. Mises has to die in order to liberate Jesus. That is who I truly am in the, in the depths of the temple. And of course, you, you know, the wonderful story that as Jesus dies on the cross and delivers up his spirit, that curtain in the temple rips from the top to the bottom. And I, we can talk about this in a little bit, but I think it's this fast, it's just an amazing picture, but one thing that it's a picture of is conception. Um, and that that's where we're, where we're begotten from above when we begin to enter in, when we enter into communion with, with Jesus. All right. Let's I think we're, I think we've got a good foundation here. Let's start moving through these verses. Verse two, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yeah, so there's there's a way of sin and death, and there's a way of the of the spirit, and he's going to go on to describe that in the next verse. So let's go on to the next verse then. Well, I was just going to say there's some articles there that don't show up in the NIV. Yeah, that's true. It, you know, and so it it uh, I I was looking at it. Who sets you um, the law of the spirit who gives life and has set you free from the law of the sin and the death. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. So I think he's, again, once again, Paul's going back to the garden and he's saying the sin is uh, 
that effort to take knowledge from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I believe is a picture of the cross, and then use that knowledge in order to make yourself in the image of the God of God. So you think you're making yourself good when in fact you're making yourself you're making yourself dead. And you're trapping yourself in that old stone edifice, the the false self, Mises, the flesh. And by doing that, by taking knowledge to justify yourself, you're turning yourself into a competitor with all of your brothers and sisters. So it's a, it's a picture of um, a body that's cut to pieces and then calcifying because the life is no longer circulating between the members because the individual members have believed uh, a lie that I must justify myself. And so that means I must show how I'm better than David or, or on the other hand, I'll worry that I'm worse than David when it turns out that David and I are members of one body and David can't be me and I can't be David except for we are because we're in this communion called, called life. So yeah, I think it goes right back to that original temptation that I think we are tempted with like every moment of existence in this world. All right. Verse three, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Yeah, that's, um, that's a huge sentence, right? Of how did, how did Jesus condemn sin in the flesh? And um, it seems to me that you could never exhaust the full meaning of that. But penal substitution atonement probably is hard to make sense with uh, that verse. This goes back to that inner tent. Because when he condemns sin in the flesh, the sin that's in the flesh is that when, when I want to justify myself, I go around condemning everyone else, right? So if you're um, in second grade and you have a spelling bee, you want everybody else to mess up their answers on the spelling test so you can be better. And as adults, we say, oh, yeah, children are children, but we're not like that anymore. And yet all you have to do is watch politics or the news or anything and go, no, we're exactly like that. We're just far more sophisticated. So we try to build ourselves up by condemning those around us. And then, you know, when I was thinking about that first sentence, there's the no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I kind of had a crisis moment one night where I realized, gosh, all I do is condemn myself. And now I'm condemning myself for condemning myself. So I'm just like a swirling vortex of condemnation. I condemn other people, then I condemn myself for condemning those other people and condemn myself for being trapped in condemnation. And Jesus condemns that. He condemns that vortex of condemnation. So how do I get out of that cycle of condemnation? So if I condemn myself for condemning me, um, I just add to the condemnation. And for me, the, the more I thought about Paul's picture, I realized, no, something has to break that cycle with a different reality. And the reality of this world is competition and condemnation. You could call that unforgiveness. And the reality in that inner tent is um, 
unconditional love, non-transactional love, uh, perfect forgiveness. And so how did Jesus do that on the cross? Well, the height of our ability to play the world's game, according to Paul, I think, and you pay close attention, is religion. That is, we have the best knowledge of good and evil. We're the best at condemning other people and exalting ourselves. And what's the end product of all of that game? Well, the end product is that the people of God, chosen by God, who had all the best information about God, take him to a tree in a garden and kill him. <laughs> and they, we judge the judge and the judge doesn't condemn us, which is like just a shocking development in the whole story, right? Mm -hmm. So the condemnation of all of our condemnation is that Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They just don't have no idea what reality is about. And that breaks that cycle of condemnation. And the, the wild thing is that it, it, it exposes the principalities and powers. I mean, that's the way I think um, Mennonites and Amish sometimes talk about it, that uh, Jesus, that Jesus death of absolute grace exposes the absurdity and the emptiness of all of our condemning. I think another way that maybe you could say that, and we could probably talk forever on this verse, David, I think Jesus is saying that unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. In other words, condemnation is condemned. You cannot go to the kingdom of heaven and sit at the great banquet and have something against your brother. <laughs> that God says, I will not allow that. Um, you have to give up the old game of, of condemnation. And so for me, when I get in that cycle of condemnation, because I can always find something to condemn about myself, how do I get out of it? Be be because if, if I try to get out of it through my work, by condemning my condemnation, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. If you've ever been to a party and you're self-conscious, you know what that's like, right? You keep thinking, top, stop thinking about yourself. And the more you think that, the more you think about yourself. But what I've realized is I have to crawl into that inner tent. I have to go just sit with Jesus, who is the presence of my father, and hear him tell me that he loves me. And for me, part of that too is just, letting him know where I am and knowing that he still delights in me. He doesn't destroy me and that he accepts me and doesn't just accept me. He really delights in me. So I do what Paul was talking about um, in chapter seven. I delight with the living God and the living law in the depths of my being. And this is the interesting thing. When I go to that place, when I go into Jesus Mises dies. So you remember in the Old Testament, there there's all this drama about people dying, trying to get into that inner tent. And I think that's the, because the reality of grace just annihilates all of our illusions of justifying ourselves in competition. So if I have been justified and I see that, there's no way I can justify myself. And the ego drops to the floor, um, it dies. So that, I think I think that's part of it. I, does it make some sense? Well, I, I like the idea. I've always liked the idea of covering. There's this covering from above. And so God, by sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh, provides this 
this covering, this covering yeah. of grace, yeah. and that, and that that's that's this covering of grace is what we're under, and it's a costly covering. Yeah, but it's a covering demonstrated in love and sacrificial love. Yeah, and it's it's just an amazing picture. Yeah, so I think what so I think that all fits together if you go back to the garden story. And that is, what do we all do once we take that knowledge and try to justify ourselves? We fall under condemnation, begin condemning each other. Then we dress ourselves in fig leaves and we hide in the trees. And God comes along wanting to go for a walk and we're hiding from him. We're hiding from each other. And the only place to hide from love is is hell, like C.S. Lewis talked about. And by that, I mean Hades. And I don't think it lasts forever. But I do think there's this place of outer darkness where people weep and gnash their teeth. So what does the revelation of jesus do and the cross is the revelation of jesus it's the revelation of the father's heart it's a revelation of the glory of god which is which is love when i'm exposed to it it undresses me (laughs) it takes off my fig leaves which is all my unrighteousness right all my attempts at justifying myself and then jesus dresses me in his own righteousness which is what you know paul's going to be talking about a whole bunch in romans and that that righteousness is faith. And so through his death and through delivering up his spirit um, and giving us his blood, the pick in the, and the life is in the blood, the faith is in the blood, the righteousness is in the blood. Uh, at the cross, Jesus undresses us. We die with him, is maybe another way you could say it. And then we also rise with him, and he dresses us in his righteousness. He gives us his goodness. And I think we, we know parallels of this all the time. If you've ever been really bad, and then someone comes along and forgives you, um, and and not in a manipulative way, but in kindness and love. It changes you. It transforms you. And um, to be well, you talk about that in your book, David. I remember you tell the one story about the guy. He said, "What was it? He was a a pedophile or, or something, or a, a rapist or something." And he yeah, said, "Yeah, he was in he was in prison. He had a, he had offended against children, and he." And he went to meet with, uh, wanted to meet with the minister, and the minister had recently become convinced of universal reconciliation, but really did not want to meet with this guy, but decided, well, according to my theology, I, I need to meet with him. And, and the guy in the conversation said that the most painful thing that he ever, he said when he was offending, he felt kind of numb but that the painful, the most painful thing that ever happened to him was being forgiven. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think that's such a beautiful story. And it, and it, it, it makes sense to me on a few different levels. I remember some people at our church when we first got there years ago, they loaned us a bunch of money to put the down, down payment on the house. And then they came over one day and said, you know, we'd just like to give you the money. And I had such a hard time with that. I I realized I'd sit there trying to figure out, well, yeah, I really deserve the money because I worked hard at church. And I realized I just hate forgiveness because I want to be proud that I did it, that I accomplished it. I remember praying with um, this this friend of ours who had been through all this ritual abuse and satanic stuff. And we're dealing with some crazy dark things. And I remember Jesus had revealed to her that he forgave her. And I said, you're forgiven. And at one point, she like grabbed me by the collar and screamed in my face, don't you get it? I don't want to be forgiven. (laughs) And and I realized, yeah, when it stares you in the face, it undresses you of all your ego. And you, and well, you become a little child, right? And that's what happens when I go into the internet 
when I go back into the inner tent, when I, mm-hmm. when I crawl up next to dad and say, I'm scared, help me. If I, well, and we we're going to talk about this. When I say Abba, daddy, somehow I'm reduced to a little kid and a little kid doesn't approach his dad based on his merit. A little kid approaches his dad based on his father's merits, who his father is not who he is. That, that is the, the basis of that relationship. All right, let's move on to verse four. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's what we talked about in the past, kind of the difference. But, but and I think this is part of the, the picture that Paul sees. So another thing that Paul says, you know, is that we are his body. And we modern people think, oh, that's just kind of metaphorical language. He doesn't really mean it. But I think Paul means it. And when I talk about my flesh or my body, like we said before, the problem with my body is it only feels its own pleasure and its own pain. And my body grows by eating other bodies, uh, plant bodies, animal bodies. We call it food. We talked about eating life and pooping death. But my flesh is focused on itself. But the spirit is the breath, and the breath is in the blood, according to Jesus. And according to doctors, it's the oxygen that circulates in the blood. And I am not simply my own flesh, but I'm part of a larger body that is the very body of Christ. So I can have the psyche of an individual, this, and which is actually that psyche of Mises that Jesus, the spirit of Jesus gets trapped in, in the depths of the old stone temple. I can have that psyche and be and and think about myself. So when I justify myself, I suddenly make myself a an enemy of everyone else that God has created. But when I believe that I am justified and I look around and realize that oh we're all part of one body, then my consciousness changed from being an individual to being part of a, a unity or a community. So my thumb doesn't think about well what's good for my thumb if it has consciousness, it thinks about what's good for the body. And then the joy of the whole body is the joy of the thumb. So um, when we're in the spirit, I think we're in the spirit of Jesus. And that that spirit comes to us through the blood, it circulates through all the members, and it's a different consciousness. Um, and um, that the, the individual consciousness is the false consciousness. That's the dream that you were talking about. So I wake from the illusion that I'm my own creator. I wake to the reality that I've been created. I'm part of this amazing community called the kingdom of heaven. And the the nice thing here is that the the righteous requirement of the law, which I can't fulfill, has been fulfilled in Christ. And so, so now I don't have to live trying to do that. I can now live in, in that that spirit in which there is no condemnation. So I think there's a lot of good, I think there's a lot of good news right there. Yeah. So if Jesus is the judgment of God, Jesus makes the decision to love on the cross and in the garden of Gethsemane, right? When he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. He, so there's a little thing I say that help that brings everything into focus for me. God is love and his decision is love. So the the judgment of God is love. When one person loves in a world that doesn't love, it looks like a naked man hanging on a cross being killed by everybody else. When two people love uh, within a covenant, it looks like, well, it actually looks like a honeymoon and a good marriage and suddenly sacrificing one for the other 
losing your life and finding another, it's not painful, but it's actually becoming joyful. Well, when everybody loves, when everybody sacrifices for everybody else, it's called a body. And every member is happy because every member sacrifices and they all share their joy together. That's what a symphony is. That's what a party is. And that's, and Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one that takes the, the first step on the cross. So he doesn't die. So we don't have to, he dies. So we would all die with him and rise with him. And we'd all join that, that dance or that game that we talked about before. All right. Verse five. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we said, right? Yeah. It's just powerful the way that you – it's so powerful the way that you think about all of this. And I think science has shown now that there's something called neuroplasticity or they have neural pathways – and so the more that we think this good way, the more that we have have this way of thinking, the more natural it becomes and the easier it becomes to, yeah. to live that way. It just really starts flowing. That's so good. And I think the biblical word for that is worship. So I always try to say this to people like, look, you did not come here to get more information to go apply to your business or your marriage and make it better. You came here to forget about yourself because you're worshiping the creator. So in worship, you lose yourself in glorifying someone else. And then you find yourself because lo and behold, you're part of a body. So when is a, a chicken leg most a chicken leg? Not when it's detached from the chicken, but when it's attached and running around the yard. Suddenly it's free when it's reattached and we, are, and we go to worship to reattach. Uh- Verse six, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the real literal translation there is the mind of the flesh is death. So once my thumb only thinks of itself, it's dead. <laughs> it's, it's just done. And that, and you could look at my thumb If I cut it off and set it on the table and say it looks alive, but we all know it's dead, it may have that appearance, but it's going to slowly rot. And I think the surprising revelation in scripture and Paul talks this way is that, yeah, we all died back in that, back in that garden when we decided to be our own creator, savior and redeemer. All right. Verse seven, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Yeah. Well, and because God's law is love, right? And and in this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So love, the movement of love is self-sacrifice and it's painful in this world. And lo and behold, in the next, it turns out to be the very essence of joy and ecstasy. And, and, when it's, the, and it's the thing that marriage and sexual communion points to. And then how cool that that's where babies come from. And in all of that, God is speaking to our hearts saying, well, this is, this is the thing I created. The thing you created is a bunch of institutions and judgments and prisons and war. Um, so, so yeah, the mindset on the self is hostile to the law of love. Then verse eight, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Yeah. If the whole law is love, and you're totally focused on yourself, well, that doesn't please God. 
and it doesn't please God because ultimately you're not pleased. You're that's how we trap ourselves in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing our teeth. All right, verse nine. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Yeah. Yeah, that's um let's see here. Yeah, that's fascinating. And he's going to talk about, well, he's going to talk about this spirit in three ways. So just tack on to that, this next verse. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So, um, yeah, some versions translate, and you know this, David, I think you read if indeed, but like I th some of the ESV translates it, they, you know, they've changed some of the versions of it, but you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit since the spirit of God dwells in you. And this raises a fascinating question. And this, we were wrestling with it in chapter 10, then when he said that Christ, you know, was in the Israelites 1500 years before uh, Christmas is who could be a person and not have the spirit of God dwelling in them? Because in the very beginning, the sixth day of creation, God breathes and breathes his breath, which is also translated spirit into dust. And Adam becomes a, um, a nephesh, a soul or a psyche. So to be a person is to have the spirit of God somehow animating dust in you. And then he goes on to say, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Well, then you got to ask this hard question. Well, isn't the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ? I mean, isn't there one spirit? And then um, he talks about if, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And to me, this goes back to all these fascinating questions about, um, about that inner sanctuary and about the temple and about what is it to be a human and what is salvation? And what does that mean when the, the curtain rips in the temple? And the picture that I can't seem to get away from is that the spirit is inside of everyone that's a human because God breathed it to them in the beginning. But the spirit is uh, like uh, trapped in there. And Paul talks about this, that the truth, we've imprisoned the truth in the chains of our own unrighteousness. He says that in chapter one, that 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 knowledge, that that spirit or that consciousness is in every human person and yet trapped under all this ego. And then the spirit of Christ comes as the word that's preached or the word from outside and somehow the curtain trips and it's like almost like a sperm impregnated in egg. And then that we become one with the spirit, says Paul in Corinthians. And then that spirit grows in the temple as the old man is replaced by the new man. And our old self, our ego, gives birth to the new man, the new Adam, the eschatos Adam, that is somehow the spirit of God in us or the spirit of Christ in us. So I just think those verses are so fascinating and mysterious and wonderful. And the church has argued over this, you know, for a few thousand years. And what does it mean? Where is the breath of God? And in the Old Testament, I think Solomon, the Old Testament prophets, they testified, well, that that breath is is still in Adam. It's trapped in Adam um, in the depths of the temple. Paul's intention here is not to create some type of new legalism. 
But, you know, there's, especially if you're reading in the NIV, well, it starts to feel kind of transactional here. Flesh burn in the realm of the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ, And but if Christ is in you, you know, so there's a lot of if language there, at least the way that's translated into the English. And if you're a person that is prone to worrying about things, you know, that could that could get you worrying. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. It, I, I don't think Paul meant that in that way, but it can be read that way. Yeah, sure. I think it can be. And that's where you have to read the, the whole story. So that you have the spirit is really a big deal. And yet the spirit goes where it wills, right? It's like the wind. And it's not it's not up to us. We preach through Ecclesiastes and how to yeah, all of life is striving after wind. And and the word, you know, for wind can also be translated spirit. So we're this is the this is the weird picture I think that scripture paints. When we're living in the outer courts, when we're living in the flesh we're all striving after the spirit and that's the original i think that's kind of original sin i'm going to capture god and use god and benefit from god but lo and behold um we're all striving after the wind and then the story of scripture is that the whole time the wind is striving after us the spirit striving after us and jesus breathes the spirit in the disciples um it's there in the body and the blood God breathes it in the first place. But I think if you worry about it, maybe it's helpful to worry to the point to realize that the spirit is a gift. So God is the one who gives the spirit. And you probably wouldn't, and I and I would argue, you wouldn't be asking this question unless the spirit motivated you to ask it. <laughs> and sometimes it's confusing because sometimes the word if really sort of means sense. So, yeah. for instance, if you said to your children, well, if you're my child, you don't have to worry about that. Well, you're not you're not saying if if you're my child, you're saying since. Yeah. And in that first sentence, the word that gets trans, I'm trying to look for, for all the ifs in here. I, I don't know about verse 10, but in verse nine, where the foundation of the, his argument, the word is hyper. It's not the normal word for if, but it's also translated. It's. It's the word if, and then another another Greek, a few other Greek letters that often gets translated if indeed or since. In other words, um, oh, and this is interesting. In Romans 3.30, I wrote this note down. I think it's the other place where Paul uses iper, and this is how he uses it. He, he's In 3.30, he says, since God is one. He's not saying if God is one. <laughs> no mm-hmm. good Jew would ever mean that. He's saying because God is one then these other things are true. So if Paul is using the word in the way he's already used the word in the letter, he's saying, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, because the spirit of God dwells in you. So something is telling, so we we have a liar, but this goes back to the original story in a fascinating way too. The snake says to, um, he tempts Adam and Eve to make themselves in the image of God, which seems to indicate that they're not in the image of God. But maybe, but God says he's going to make them in his own image. And maybe they, they kind of already are in his image. He's tempting us to not believe the truth about ourselves, to come out of that inner sanctuary and live in the, the outer courts of the temple. 
All right, I'll go on to verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Yeah. That's such a, that's such a, um, gosh, that's such an incredible verse. And that really lies at, I think, the heart of all the problems with the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. Because for a person to be a person, they have to have the breath of God in them. They have to have something eternal in them. Like, you know, like Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, he placed eternity in your hearts. Well, if, and then he says, then he talks about the spirit going back to the one who made it at death, that kind of thing. Well, if a person is conscious, endlessly conscious, and they're still a person, well, that means that spirit is in them endlessly conscious and that spirit is God's spirit. So the really weird problem with the eternal conscious torment is that by damning people to endless conscious torment, you damn God to endless conscious torment, which makes sense on all sorts of levels on a psychological level. If in fact, God loves us on an anthropological level, if in fact we are constructed with the, with the breath of God. And it also makes sense of the fact that when we sin, when we take the life of the good on the tree in the garden, the good on the tree in the garden, like according to the creeds, descends into the outer darkness. In Psalm 22, all kinds of text talks about Jesus descending into Hades. Some of my weird experiences are praying with people who have to go back to horrible memories that are really like hell and dealing with some kind of weird, bizarre, demonic stuff and discovering that Jesus is always there. Like he really will not leave us nor forsake us. And when he said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me, he really meant it. So if God condemns the least of Jesus' brothers, which are the Israelites, which includes Judas, right? That's Jesus' brother. Um, if he, if, if God condemns them, to eternal conscious torment, he's condemning Jesus to eternal conscious torment. And that's because Jesus chose to make himself least of all and last of all and servant of all. And he never put a time limit on that. Like, that's good for 40 years, and then I will turn into the kick-ass Messiah or something. But his love is eternal. So, yeah, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well, then he's going to raise he's going to raise you like he raised Jesus, which is exactly what Paul is going to say now in the rest of Romans and exactly what he says very clearly in First Corinthians 15. All right. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. Yeah. So the world is telling us all the time that we have to justify ourselves. And he's like, no, you don't. Well, and I've thought, too, that. There is this sort of idea of free will in our society, which is we're sort of blank slates. We're blank checks, and we can write the check out however we want to. And every, it's up to us. We determine we're the captains of our own ship. We determine our own destiny. We decide what we want and what we don't want. We decide what makes us happy and what doesn't make us happy. And anybody who treads on that is an enemy. And so... It's really hard. It's very liberating. Ironically, it's very liberating for me once I got away from that. And I started to realize, no, I am not the captain of my own ship. 
I am not the one who forges my own destiny. I'm not even the one who determines what I like. I am a creation of God. His spirit is in me. And I have a certain way of being that's a gift. And I am fulfilled in the living out of that and the discovering of that, which is all grace. And so once I got that, then it really freed me up uh, that I'm not my own creation. Yeah, that's it. Well, <laughs> that's beautiful. I, and I think what Paul is going to, and he's, he's going to develop this right here in chapter eight. And in the sermon series, we talked a lot about free will in chapter 10. But I think what, you, you know, nobody can really define free will. The Bible never uses the word free will as such. But um, I think what Paul is saying is, Basically, we all are predestined for free will, which is exactly what every father does with a little kid, right? You're, you're nuts if you say to your three-year-old, hey, you have free will, do whatever you want. But you help them to, you you give them a wanter. So the problem is humanity has a bad wanter. We all want the wrong thing because we don't know what the good is. That's what's so great about the story of the garden. How can you blame them for wanting to take the fruit from the tree when they don't know the word of God is good yet. And then lo and behold, through, through our journey, God reveals my word is good and I am good. And I'm going to teach you to choose the good. Amen. I have a friend whose uh, grandchild got in trouble and his mother tried to correct him. And he just replied, but I want to, you know, and he was just, well, I want to, I can't change, you know, but he was sort of trapped in that ego. He was discovering, yeah. he was discovering that, but he didn't know that he really didn't want to yet. He was just in that sort of initial, you know, that blossom of, of ego. Yeah, all and so, of, yeah. we, so we, I, we all have to go through that. Yeah. I remember my son Coleman saying one day, I want to be a backhoe. I said, do you mean you want to drive a backhoe? He goes, no, be a backhoe. Thought, you don't really want to be a piece of machinery. And, I remember my daughter, Elizabeth, uh, I think she's okay with me telling this story. She was like five or something. And she said, Daddy, I go, yeah. She said um, something like, um, I don't, I, something about, I don't know. I don't want to be a mommy because I don't want to have breasts or something like that. And I, I just said, well, honey, don't make any rash decisions yet. <laughs> you know, the little kids are always wanting all sorts of things and they don't know what they want. And it's really precious when they, they turn to you and say, well, what do I want, daddy? And then they, <laughs> and you help them. Um, and I think that's what God's doing with all of us. All right. Uh, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Yeah. So I think he's saying m more of what we're saying. And in a real literal translation, I kind of wrote down here a few you know, if you live according to the flesh, constantly trying to save yourself, justify yourself, the, the Greek is you are about to die. You're like always on the edge of death. And Paul has already said that if we have the mind of the flesh is death. So we, we're dead and dying. But if by the spirit, the spirit of love, um, you put to death the deeds of the body, which and if I do it by the spirit of love, I'm not really even aware that I'm putting to death the deeds of the body. I'm like the sheep that Jesus says, you know, you visited me sick and in prison and they said, when do we do that? Well, they're not thinking about justifying themselves. They're just enjoying loving people. And once we have that new wonder, so I think 
I think the biblical word for free will is love. And love is what God is creating in us or, and faith in love. Well, also, it's pretty interesting here that the way you put to death the misdeeds of the body is not by your own willpower or it's not yeah. by uh, it's not by a, a, a legal code. The, yeah. the only way you can put that to death is by the spirit. Yeah, exactly. Because if you because if you put it to death by um, the legal code, you're just creating more body of sin and death. Right. And that's what religion is really good at. Human religion, I should say. Uh, verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Yep. So then the natural question is, well, what about those that are not led by the Spirit of God, right? And mm -hmm. he's going to kind of go on to talk about that. So let's read, can we read that next verse and then go back to it? Well, yeah, there, there are just some things that I wanted to say. Yeah, just, yeah. Because on the one hand... You know, in Paul's writings, there are places where it seems very clear that God is the father of all. In Acts, uh, we find Paul quoted as saying that we're all God's children. In, in Ephesians, Paul describes mm -hmm. God as the one God and father of all who is over all and in all and through all. But there's this thing in, in the Hebrew culture is that you're not really being the child of God until you're being like God. Mm -hmm. You're not, you're not really bearing, you're, you're not bearing the image. You're not being what you are. Right. But if you take that verse the wrong way, it could say, you could, you could say, oh, well, so I guess there's some people in this world that are God's children and some people that aren't. Yeah. But that's exactly why I want to read this next verse. So. Okay. I'll, I'll read say, verse 15. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Yeah. Now, this is really interesting. So I had to do some work on this, figure out what the heck was being said. And it gets translated different ways. So this, this is how I have it. And I think there's RSV. Um, but it says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. But, but I think that you, the RSV, I like the way the RSV does it. it, says the spirit of sonship. And it's an interesting word. It's this word heliothesis, which is two other words in Greek, son and place. So he's saying, you've, you've, it's what you just said, uh, David, that you've been, when you, the spirit of sonship is your back in your place. And then check this out. In Galatians, he Paul writes to the Galatians, and, and we're going to look at his version of it here in the next verse. But to the Galatians, it says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the spirit of Heliothesius. He says, because you are sons, the spirit of the son in good standing has been sent into your heart, crying, Abba, which is just what you said. And that's what fits with these other passages throughout Scripture. I, I think... This is the one people don't talk about that to me is most convincing. And that is that when Jesus went up on the side of the mountain in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking to just a group of people that happened to follow him up the side of the mountain. None of them have said the sinner's prayer. None of them knew what we would call the plan of salvation. Probably some were Romans, some were Greeks. And he says, look, when you all pray, say our dad. Well, now think about what that means. He's, he's talking to this random group of people 
and he is the truth. He's telling them to say our dad. Would Jesus, who is the truth, tell people to lie and say that his dad is their dad? That's a rather shocking statement. But the other place I think you see it really clearly, what you were just saying is in the story of the prodigal son, both sons are sons, both struggle with what it means, what sonship means. And when the son comes back from the uh, you know, living in the far country, the father gives him the signet ring, which is identity, a robe of righteousness, shoes, which are freedom. And he gets, it's like, that's like a spirit of sonship. He comes back into the party. And then the older brother, of course, who is a picture of the Jews, he's upset about the acceptance of the younger brother. And he goes out of the party and then the father goes out to get him. But they both remain sons. And then now I got to mention this one too, okay? Because I think this is a fascinating topic. You And you mentioned this. You said that to the Athenians, he said that we're all, Paul said that we're all God's children. And what he says, and this is how a lot of versions translate it in 17, is that we are all God's offspring. And he quotes one of their poets. And But the Greek word is, is genos, you know, where yeah, we get genetics, begotten. Yeah. But then what really is amazing, I think, is that John claims that Jesus is the monogenes. He's the only begotten. So if we are begotten and Jesus is the only begotten, <laughs> well, that means we can only be begotten somehow in him, which is exactly what Paul keeps saying when he says we're his body. And the problem is we don't know his body. So we trap ourselves alone in this prison of ego, which is death until that ego, that prison of ego is destroyed and we can be reunited with who we truly are. There's also this aspect of sometimes the Old Testament that Israel is God's son. And there's mm -hmm. a sense then that now the Gentiles are somehow becoming son, adopted in, in some way as the representative, so elect, a representative community so that there's, there's this trying to understand how is the the role of election as representative people moving forward, not, not as the only people who will ever be forgiven, but as the people through whom the forgiveness of God is represented to the world through the ones who are bearing the image of Christ. And so there's that, that story is all playing in the background too. Yeah. And it's so beautiful because Paul is going to start elaborate elaborating on that in 9, 10, and 11. And it's just amazing because what people don't realize is, gosh, like two-thirds of Romans is simply Old Testament Bible verses that Paul is quoting, and he's putting together in a new way. It's like he's doing what we talked about at the start. Like you all thought this was some kind of story of Mises and justifying yourself and all these laws. And he takes all the pieces, puts it together in a new way, and says, this is the story of the creation of Adam. This is the story of the creation of humanity. This is God fulfilling his own his own desire to make humanity in his own image and likeness and the manifestation of the command that you must be uh, born again. All right. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Mm -hmm. In the RSV, we missed a really critical line. And and it gets translated differently. I think you had it tagged on the end of the last verse. But in the RSV, it says, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit, that spirit himself. So we've been talking about the spirit and the mystery that is the spirit, right? 
He says it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit, which is wild because Paul says the two become one spirit, that we are children of God. And that goes back to what I was saying about the inner tent. When I just say dad, Abba, and put myself in that place of a little child, that's the very spirit of Jesus crying out to the father within me and testifying to me that I'm a little that I'm a child of God. So, you know, when people have that salvation anxiety, we titled our whole series through Romans, um, say daddy, because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's really is how you treat that salvation anxiety. You say daddy and you mean it with just a mustard seed of faith. And well, that's Jesus. That's his life rising up in you. And then check this out. That's also not simply your free will. That's your will in communion with the one who truly has free will, which is the the word of God. And 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 to think that's what God wants. You know, I think when my first son was born, the day that I was holding him in my arms and he said Abba or Dada, I just jumped on that. Like he said my name. He said my name. And I had been speaking my name into him for weeks saying, say Dada, say Dada, say Dada. And mm-hmm. then that spirit returns to me in that name and it, and it thrills my heart. So that's the kind of relationship that God is creating with us. Verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Yeah, so that word hyper shows up again there. So the if indeed it can be translated since, like it was back in Romans 3.30. If children then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, since we suffer with him. So Paul's just going, look, you all suffer. This is good news, because we can suffer alone or we can suffer with him, and I think we can give him our sufferings at any point um, so that we may also be glorified with him. So look, let me mention two things. And the first is that that Christ inherits all things. <laughs> this is important. This yeah. is an important one. So if we're fellow heirs with him, Paul's already told us that Abraham inherits the cosmos, which is a crazy statement. Mm-hmm. We inherit all things. So if you're worried about relatives, you know, do they know Jesus and are they going to suffer in, in Hades? Well, I go, well, yes, in space and time. They may have to undergo a discipline. And so you want to tell them about who Jesus is. But if you're worried about God endlessly torturing them, well, you need to know that God loves them more than you and you're going to inherit them. I don't think that means you're going to inherit grandma endlessly on fire while God tortures her. That's hardly good news. God's plan is to withhold nothing from us. And it it also, you know, helps. Uh, I tell people, I don't mean to brag, but nobody ever had to teach me how to feel sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. I've kind of always been able to do it. <laughs> so yeah, there too. is a, there is this thing when you start doing ministry or, and then things start going wrong, which is going to happen. And you can sort of feel like, well then, oh, these are terrible things when they, instead of, but this is, gives me a really positive way of saying, well, actually this is my opportunity to share in his sufferings yeah, in some way. And when I think about the ways that 
Lots of people currently in this world are sharing in the sufferings and in the ways through history that people have shared in the sufferings. And then I look at my own what sufferings that I've experienced, it puts it all in perspective yeah. for me. But I, but I like this is that if there is some kind of suffering that we're doing, we are heirs and we, what are we inheriting? The cosmos, everything, everyone, it's everything. Yeah, and, and the so, thing that we have to suffer the loss of is the illusion that we created it, which is actually a trap and is death. And Paul's going to go on to talk about how Jesus is the firstborn, and that gets back to the picture. And I, I go, we have to suffer with him because birth hurts. You, you have to lose that. You have to lose the old world that you're in to embrace the new world. And I think it's exactly like you said, all of our suffering is an invitation to commune with Jesus in that he owns all the suffering. And so ultimately, and I have some kind of wild stories about this. The revelation is not so much that Jesus, was well, not that Jesus shares in my suffering. It's that I share in his suffering and I can share in his suffering with all of my sufferings because it all belongs to him. And when I surrender it, then it becomes this weird kind of treasure. Well, uh, in my, in my journey, you know, my, I guess I've suffered a little bit of, you know, people misunderstand me a little bit and a little concerned that I think that Jesus is going to save everybody. And, and, you know, so that was one of the reasons I wrote the book and doing the podcast is really just to sort of help give an explanation to that, but I never had anything really, you know, my world never fell apart because of this, but your world was kind of ripped, ripped apart over this. And it's not like your world was ripped apart and you had this great big church and then God gave you an even bigger church. You know, no. it hasn't yeah. necessarily, I mean, in a way, the message you were preaching before uh, had a lot. Well, you weren't really preaching it, but that message needs to be preached institutionally. And when you stopped preaching it, they couldn't. You couldn't be there anymore. Yeah, I, it seemed like there, there's a lot of. Were, to me, you've been through a hard road. Yeah, yeah. Well, gosh, there's a. I don't know if I should tell this story or not, but because it could easily be misunderstood. But when I was, my wife will have these visions. And so I'll tell you this, but you just, everybody just needs to know I'm kind of an ass. So don't make too much of this. But um, <laughs> when uh, they put me on trial and I kind of knew that I had to say, they were trying me because they wanted me to say there's a group of people that couldn't be saved and a group of people that Jesus didn't want to save. And because of the things I had seen and encountered, I knew that if I said that I would be lying about Jesus and I'd be opening myself to the evil one. And I just didn't want to do that. Well, they, they tried me in front of all these people and a lot of the pastors weren't there. They, you know, would send elders or whatever. And, and it was crazy because it was, you know, it was really everything I had kind of worked for and built this church. And they pronounced judgment. And I remember I just felt like I I need to walk out of here. 
as clean as I possibly can without a bunch of garbage hanging to me. And of course, I didn't do everything perfect. But I said, well, could I close, could I kind of end the, the meeting with prayer? And they let me do that. And I stood up front and I remember I, I wasn't, I was praying largely for selfish reasons because I just felt there was so much evil in the whole thing. And I, I prayed, Father, would you just forgive all of us? And my wife had a vision. She said, Peter, when I heard you say, Jesus, would you forgive all of us? All of a sudden, I saw you um, nailed to a cross in front of the in front of the room. And um, then I watched Jesus come in and take you down off of the cross. And she said, you're really hurt and it's going to take a long time to heal, but you need to know he took you down off of the cross. So the reason I say that is I feel like the evil one constantly says you're, you're a failure. Just look at um, what happened to you. And then I think of what Susan saw and I think, wow, I think the greatest gift that I ever received is what Satan keeps bragging on me. It's the greatest failure. And the whole world just suddenly turns on its head, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's also a picture of being born with Jesus out of one reality into another. And, I hesitate to share that story so people would, wouldn't think that I'm something that I'm not or something that they're not because I think God gives us that gift in all of our sufferings when we give them to him and we forgive, which means we allow. So we allow it to happen and we allow others their sins um, and we surrender judgment to the Father that Father, you're going to, you do what you do with this and, and you're good. But yeah, we're his children, provided we suffer with them, that we may also be glorified with them. That oh, sin turns the world guess, on its head. I guess I just wanted to say that because there are some people that we know who are in institutional situations and for them to, to speak this truth could cause them to lose you know, could cause them to lose a position or a pension, or I don't know what, what things might be on the line for people. But there is that sort of then the good news is that now if we are children, then we're heirs and then we're sharing in his sufferings that we may also share in his glory. And then verse 18, and mm -hmm. I think Paul was in a position to be familiar with sufferings. Oh, and he says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's beautiful. And this has two us. I imagine that's probably a dative or something. But yeah, and I, I think it's he's going to go on. I think he's going to start talking about birth here in a little bit. But um, it's like saying, yeah, that that old that time in the womb we've all forgotten it um i tell a story a lot about my first son being born and how it was so obviously painful for him 
Um, and, but, and they cut off his umbilical cord and, and it was so painful. And yet it's long forgotten now. It's not even worth comparing to the joy of living as a person in this world. And then we find out, lo and behold, this world is still like a womb. And uh, what we see as death here is birth into that other place. Well, and I, I think I listened to one of your sermons and you described the birth of your second son. And he yeah. came out and the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. And so the very thing that he, you know, that he had been depending on to give him life was now strangling him. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's so fascinating is that because at the end of, I think, one of these sermons, I had people gaze at their navel, which I do sometimes at funerals, you know, <laughs> and people usually go with it. And I talk about the fact that they, uh, your belly button is really the stigmata of the, well, something analogous to the second birth. Um, and your belly button represents that place where you were cut off from your old world because your umbilical cord was your life, your nutrition. It brought you the food from that womb of a world. And then lo and behold, that world caves in on you, crushes you, begins to expel you. You think that everything has fallen to pieces when in fact you're being pushed out of one world into another. Then they cut that thing, the thing that was most valuable to you. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed them his scars, his stigmata. Well, then I said, well, that, that represents the place on his body where he was cut away. And you're going to lose this old physical body but I think you're going to have something like stigmata in the new creation. That's a lot like your belly button here. But yeah, the story of Coleman is if you hang on to here, this is the irony. And this is what Jesus says. This is a statement that should kind of shock us when we really analyze it. He says, if you try to save your life, you lose it. And what do we do at, um, <laughs> in church? Well, if you need to save your life, do this, this, and this. And we try to get people to save their life by taking information that we give. And that's where religion can be strangely deceptive. He said, if you, if you try to save or save your psyche or your life, what you consider your life, um, you lose it. But if you lose it for my sake in the gospel, um, you'll find it. So it's by hanging on to the things of this world, hanging on to the accolades of this world, the the rewards of this world that you end up getting stuck in this world. And that's where C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is such a great picture of that. You remember the people that are in Hades are the people that kind of get everything they want and they hang on to it. So mm -hmm. they don't want to go with the angel on the bus ride going to heaven. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay. So verse 19, yeah. for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the whole creation is in the process of being renewed and reborn, and somehow it's tied into us. And can, can I read this next line? Cause, well, because, yeah, verse 20. Yeah. Uh, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the picture is there really is what we were just talking about, that the whole creation is like a womb and space and time is like a womb. And we're born out of this womb of space and time into eternity or the age to come where space and time doesn't operate the the same way. And uh, that the fact that creation was subjected to futility, I think that's fascinating. They subjected it in hope. Um, 
he's, I think David Bentley Hart uh, translated it pointlessness. But what that tells us is that ultimately futility is not futile. God has a purpose for futility. And there's a point to the pointlessness. Um, and so maybe the, you know, the purpose of chaos is to reveal the logos, which is Jesus. And the purpose of sin is to reveal the glory of God's grace. And the purpose of condemnation is our justification. And our encounter with desecration is a revelation of creation. And this world of darkness is where we first see the light. And the reason that we can't get anything done in this world, that's futility, is that we have to come to the realization that we are something that is done. We have to come to the realization that God created us before we can be truly made in his image, the image of the creator. And when I talk about my kids being born, when our first son was born, and um, well, well, this is this is something I, I talk about, too, that after he was born. Well, let me say this first. We learned that that labor prepares the child to breathe in the new world. So the labor actually crushes the lungs. So you expel one world so you can inhale the other. There are these fascinating verses, I think, in all four Gospels that talk about Jesus on the cross surrendering his spirit. It gets translated verse in different ways. But he's a picture of like the first man who surrenders his breath and then uh, to the father and then the father breathes it right back into him. So he's the first person that truly breathes out that spirit that was breathed into us in in the beginning. Um, and gosh, the, and the pictures, once, once you consider that this world is a womb, but this is a... Maybe you remember me telling this story. This fascinates me and goes back to chapter one. Right after John was born, he was just in so much pain and trauma and he wouldn't stop crying. And the nurse put him in my hands and she said, talk to him. He knows your voice. And the moment I said, Scooter, that's what we called him because we didn't know his, you know, he didn't know if he was a boy or a girl at the time. The moment I spoke, he, he instantaneously grew still. And I realized he knows my voice. And I, and I thought, how on earth does he know my voice? And I had drawn a smiley face on Susan's belly and every night in, in indelible ink, which then wouldn't yeah. <laughs> get it off of her belly at the doctor's office. So I had to explain it. But every night I would talk to the face and I'd say, Scooter, how you doing in there? I can't wait to meet you. And I realized my voice, what, he, everything in that womb world would move to the sound of my voice. And yet I couldn't be found in that womb world. And in in this world, there are things that just don't make sense in this world that, that no one can explain by this world that are like a voice from another world. So if, if God is love and his, his word is logic or reason, logos, well, we all know, have an idea what love is. We all talk about truth. We all talk about reason. But nobody can isolate it as a thing in this world. It's like a voice from beyond this world. So in the midst of the chaos of this world, we have an idea of logos. We wouldn't even know what futility is unless we had an idea of what order is or logos is. So, um, and I think that's the big story. So once that story dawns on you that we are being told the story of our own birth, we are being told the story of our own creation and the judgment of God is you must be born again. 
well, the entire picture changes. All the pieces are there. And, and all the ifs become the ifs of God. God is in control of the ifs. He's the one that's doing the creation. And we really will be judged. We have to leave this world. And to hang on to this world is to be stuck in the outer darkness. But we are, we are the objects of God's creative love. And the thing that we have to give up is the illusion that we're own, we're own creator. But when we give it up, we enter into freedom and we lose the prison that is our old ridiculous ego. All right. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool because you know what the gospels are full of, or especially the gospel of John, uh, talking about that we have Ionios life now. And the word Ionios, you know, means of the age. It's of the age to come, the age beyond space and time as we experience it now. So when we begin to love and our, um, and our desires become God's desires, we begin to walk in, in this new freedom. And somehow the whole creation is going to be filled with that freedom. I think we just taste it in moments of worship or moments of real love. But somehow that love is going to fill absolutely everything. And so this is consistent with absolutely consistent with the picture in the Revelation and the picture in Corinthians that God's making the whole creation new. Behold, I make all things new. And that's another problem <laughs> for the whole idea of endless conscious torment. There's no space for it in the the creation that is mm -hmm. uh, to come, that is that already exists, that we somehow begin to enter into through through faith. All right, verse twenty two. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, you know if you think about it creation is eating itself. So we all go to, for a nature walk and think, oh, this is so beautiful. And then, you know, that something eats something else or you step in a pile of crap or whatever. But I think that the picture in scripture is that there's going to come a day when the lion's going to lie down next to the lamb and the child's going to play over the adder's den. And those, that's not just empty poetry. It's, it's reality and the longing of our hearts because we live in this creation that's so beautiful and then we see it devour itself and somehow it's not going to devour itself. So I think it's going to be set free from that futility. And, 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 and that he says it's groaning and labor pains is like, yeah, it's giving birth to us. So there's a reason for all this futility. And I think that's to make us long for the logos, which is the word, which is the judgment of God. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Yeah. So if you translate it really, as we wait for Heliothesia, which is sonship, uh, the redemption of our bodies and that the fruits of the spirit are first fruits is really cool. So you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those things that he lists other places. And faith is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Well, what are those things? Well, they're good decisions. And he's saying, well, that's the work of the Spirit in you. 
And that's really what free will is. And what's a problem? Well, we have some good decisions. We have moments of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, but we have a whole lot of other moments. Well, ask that good decision, ask that, ask that, if you think of that temple as that inner saint, if the curtain, as the curtain rips and, and the life of Jesus begins to flood that old stone temple, well, that's love flooding this old body that has been hanging on to the, hanging on to the life. It's reanimating this body, connecting it with other bodies. Um, and that's, that's my home. So we have the first fruits and if there's first fruits, there's going to be later fruits. That's good news. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because hope when, when God, when God hopes, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of hope than human hope. (laughs) Um, God knows what's going to happen. And he's saying in this hope, and what hope is he talking about? Well, he's hoping, he's talking about a new creation. So when we go around preaching that that new creation might not happen, or that new creation is dependent on you, I think we go around killing people's hope. And yet the hope is what, is what saves us. Um, in this hope, we are saved. It's hope for that new creation that allows me to lose this creation and not hang on to this world and then transforms the meaning of all of my experiences. When uh, I first heard about the word salvation, from the way people talked about it, salvation meant being forgiven of your sin guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a larger context to that word. If you look in the scripture about in the Old Testament story about deliverance from bondage. Yeah. And yeah. so to, so to well, be dis, to be saved is then to be delivered. Could you say something about that? Yeah. This is the, so this is the picture. And I mean, going verse to verse, I don't know how much the, I'm hoping the whole picture comes through here. But in this hope, we are delivered. What are we delivered from? Well, we're delivered from ourselves. What Paul said back in chapter seven Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin and death? And what is the old body of sin and death? Well, it's like a womb. So what are we being saved from? We're being saved from our what we think is our whole world, which is this womb world, and being born into the new creation. Um, so, yeah, we're and 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 what's the trap? It's it's our it's our ego. So. You know, we've kind of gotten this weird idea that Jesus died for you so you don't have to die. But Paul is saying, no, Jesus died for you so you would die with him. But when Jesus dies, he's the firstborn of a new creation. So the death of Jesus is is the birth. So when you die with Jesus, you're also being born with Jesus and you're being delivered from the principalities and powers of this world. You're being delivered from the systems of thought in this world. You're being delivered from the lie that has infected your your psyche, you're being delivered from your old psyche, you're being delivered from yourself, which is being delivered from your sins. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you, once you realize that God is going to make everything right, well, you don't desperately have to make everything right. 
And when you think of most of the things that are wrong in the world, it's people desperately trying to make things right. Hitler was desperately trying to make things right for the Germans. Vladimir Putin is, at least in his own mind, he tells himself he's desperately trying to make things right for Russians. He's also trying to make things right for his ego. We could just uh, go down the line. But if I trust that God is going to do it, it transforms the meaning of everything. And I, I think when I when I was preaching on this verse, I told a story about uh, the guy who worked at the gas station up the street from me. I went in there one day and there was stream. Well, there it was. Uh, okay, I talked to, how was it? Oh yeah, I saw there were streamers, balloons all over. I said, what happened? And this guy knew, he said, well, my wife, you know, and uh, she she didn't know that we, we, we thought something was wrong. She was having all these stomach problems. We rushed her to the emergency room and lo and behold, he said, it wasn't an intestinal blockage. She was having a baby. And they didn't realize she was pregnant. And she was a rather large gal. I saw the picture. And I thought, isn't that amazing? They thought that everything was going wrong, that the world was falling apart. And then lo and behold, they're giving birth to life. Well, once we surrender our sufferings to Jesus, once we surrender to the big story, that story transforms the meaning of everything so that um, I can endure the labor pains. Um, you know, watching my wife go through labor, I don't know that I've ever seen someone suffer so much, but she suffered in hope and she didn't give up. And when we trust what God is doing, then I think we can do the, the same thing. So I don't think patience means that we don't, we don't want it to happen, but we trust God with the process. Verse 26, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think Jesus is being born with us. We're being born with him. He, he entered into this world to die with us and rise with us. And Verse it's 20. okay. So, yeah. So God is talking to himself about us all the time. Verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Yeah, that's a fascinating verse that kind of takes you into the heart of the Trinity, right? And I, I've learned to read, when, when I used to ask myself that question, who are God's people? Well, seems like God's people are all people. So what is, what, what's the reference to God's people here? And what I've decided, or at least the way I started reading it, is when God's people... That's Paul talking about this. It's, it's con continuing on this covenant language, God's representative people whose mission is to be a part of the way God blesses all of creation. And so God's people aren't the only ones who, quote, get saved. God's people are the ones through whom God saves all. That's God's people, I, I, I wrote it one time like this, that God's people are not a cul-de-sac for salvation. They're a conduit for salvation. Yeah, I think that's really true. But there's so much going on in this verse. Yeah, you're pulling on the, I think the ESV translates that saints. And I, I, one thing that helped me with the idea of election is I think the whole point of election is that God is the one that does the electing and we aren't. And so it's about God's choice. And then when you get further into Romans, Israel is elect in one sense, and then 
not elect and in the prophets they get elected again but you're right the story is that god is um that he calls people to help him call other people and in the end everybody gets called well and if and if i was ever tempted to be full of ego and say well look at me i wrote a book and i have podcast and look at all the things i'm doing for god well mm -hmm. it wasn't my choice yeah. I didn't decide. Yeah. So I didn't decide to do any of it. It's not my yeah. choice. It, it, it is my privilege, but it's not something that makes me that should, if, if it's puffing up my ego, then I'm not, I'm not conceiving of it in the right way. Well, I think you're also crucifying the Christ in this bizarre way. So in other words, you're taking the good and claiming that you're the creator of the good and you should get credit for the good, which means you're using the good. And what is the good? It's Jesus. So, I, yeah, I think a good decision in me is Jesus in me. And the moment I say, hey, that's I own that. I thought of that. I, It's like crucifying Christ. Verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose yeah so boy that's a huge topic huh so you have to ask the question who has god not called according to his purpose um and what is all things does that even include no things augustine said all things work for our good even our sins um and i i think the verse is profoundly beautiful in that for those who for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, that he calls his children, and then we create false selves. But even our false selves get used for his purposes, because we're sin increased grace about it all the more. So when we preached through this, I I said I I told a story about putting a car together and um that God gives us the pieces to the car throughout our lives and the evil one comes along and says, we have to put the pieces together and become like this beautiful sports car. And, but we just can't do it. We don't know how, but when we go into the inner tent back into that, that picture and we commune with the father, he puts us together and then he puts all the pieces of our lives together and it becomes, then we live in freedom because it becomes this thing that he has created and even the things in the past that are sins through forgiveness, they're transformed into something beautiful. And then with courage, we walk into the future that God has for us. But I think Paul really means that all things work together for good. And how do you construct an apostle Paul? Well, you deliver him up to futility and to disobedience and to persecuting the church. That's a hard pill to swallow. But I think one day we'll all turn around and realize, yes, but it's beautiful and it's good and it's true. For that's how well, he makes us in his image. And, you know, that word all, all things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Jonathan Mitchell makes this remark. He says the word all is both masculine and neuter. So both implications should be expressed, not just all things, but also all humanity. This is what the masculine implies, and the word all is primarily used in reference to people in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of God using all people to work for good, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's even kind of a broader way of looking yeah. at the craziness of this world. 
that somehow God is using all of it. Yeah. Um, yep. Right. Uh, Richard Rohr wrote that book, All Things Belong. And I think one day we'll see that. And yeah. And then yeah, everything, I think it was everything belongs. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it? Everything belongs. Yeah. Right? Everything and then, belongs. And then the no things become some things because the, the sin gets filled with grace and evil is transformed into mercy. Okay. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Yeah. So, gosh, there's so much there, isn't there? Um, first of all, let me just say it's so cool that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So on Good Friday, we watched Jesus dying. But in fact, he was being born into the new creation. Then he came back on Sunday saying, hey, my dad is your dad. So he's Paul's going to say he's the he's he says he's the firstborn among many brothers and many brethren, brothers and sisters. And he firstborn of creation. Um, uh, let's see. What else is he firstborn from the dead? Firstborn of all creation. Yeah. Firstborn from the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn among many brothers. So so that means we're all going to be born. <laughs> we, we follow him. So we're going to be born like him. And we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's free. But that's Well, that's everything that we've been talking about. Jesus came to help us die to ourselves and live to him. And our old self, that old stone temple, gives birth to the new self, which is Christ in us. So let me mention, mention this too. Jesus is the son of man. We, we always like in seminary, people would argue about what that term means. But if you think about it, if God is Jesus' father, well then, and he's the son of man, that means that man, Adam, is his mother. And that's exactly what Jesus says to his disciples. You know, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is, is my mother. And in the Revelation, um, the church is pictured as a, the bride then becomes a mother. So this is the picture that we're, we are the bride of Christ and we're like this own stone temple. And the word comes to us and we become impregnated with this new life that is the new creation. The old self really gives birth to the new self. So all of the sufferings that I go through in this world are part of the labor pains. And Jesus talked about labor pains all the time. And I can walk forward into the future with hope because uh, Jesus is doing this with me. And I've seen what happens with Jesus. The very worst possible thing that could happen turns out to be the very best. And Jesus is enthroned on the tree in the garden, which is on uh, top of the Ark of the Covenant in the depths of the temple. Uh, Jonathan Mitchell, in his uh, commentary on Romans, he quotes uh, David Byrd, who mm -hmm. has this to say. He says that Paul seems to have to do, it said that all of this that Paul's talking about seems to have to do primarily with the family of God and its representation of the kingdom of God in and for the world, we realize that thoughts about predestination in the sense of determining who's in and who's out are simply not on the field. Once we put that out of the way, what we see, and this seems to be far more appropriate, is that the passage is about the covenant faithfulness of the Creator God, that faithfulness that is recorded in the narrative of Israel that runs back to the story of Adam and the impetus 
for the unified covenant family that is composed of all peoples to take up its role. The passage is about what God is going to do for his creation, how he has been doing it, how he is going to do it, and about the people of the covenant getting on board with and participating in that plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the beginning, God spoke a word saying, let us make humanity in our own image and likeness. And then this tension arises in the Bible because humanity isn't doing the will of the Father. So you have to ask the question, who gets his will? As man gets his will, then he's going to try to make himself in God's image. Or does God get his will and he's going to make man in his image? And how does God do that? Well, he speaks a word into the void that is us. And the word is Jesus. And that's the word that um, we come into communion with in the covenant and are born into the new creation. So from the beginning to the end, I think scripture is the drama of God creating everything, including us. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Yeah, so cool. And it's all in the past tense, which is fascinating, right? Um, That means it's already happened, which means this is a pretty stinking solid hope. So like we were saying, in this hope we're saved, it's not an empty hope. It's a hope that somehow already exists. So, you know, Paul even talks about we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. So God is revealing to all of us who we actually are. And somehow that's the that's the story of creation. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Yeah, isn't that awesome? Yeah, so if this is God's judgment, who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna stop the word? Who's going to stop the judgment? Even when it seems like we stop the word, even when we take the word in flesh and nail him to a tree and kill him, he doesn't stay dead. The word conquers. And this, uh, the, when it, the NIV translates it, if God is for us, but the uh, preposition is who pair. Yeah. And that has the idea of this being over or being above or, and then you get back to this sheltering over image and that the, the idea of the sheltering over, you know, goes through the old Testament in lots of ways that, that Israel was this, um, this kind of abandoned child that God takes over and brings up and then she becomes unfaithful, but then he covers over her unfaithfulness and then he restores her. But it's all this, it's, it's all this covering over. Yeah. Well, in the word Hooper is where we get the word super too. So in down here in the little bit, it goes in all these things. We were Hooper Nicoman. It's, could be translated super conqueror. So he's super for us. So if God is super for us, if Jesus is the eschatos man, the superman, well, who who can be against us? All right, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Yeah, there's just so much in that verse because the gave him up is the Greek word paradokin, which means hand over. It's also, you know, translated betrayed. And in Paul's theology, when he describes communion in Corinthians, I was fascinated reading Bart and what he said about this, that the picture is that every time 
we serve communion as pastors, we're betraying Jesus, just like Judas betrayed Jesus. But scripture also talks about Jesus betraying Jesus and the father betraying Jesus. And it's this some kind of miraculous handing, handing over and God does it for us. This, the son does it for us. And so if he does that for us, how will he not give us all things? So what is all things? Well, that's all my relatives. It's everyone I know. It's my psyche. It's my world. So I have to surrender this world here, this womb of a world, and I get it all back, but in this fascinating and wonderful new way. Well, and this goes to me against this uh, limited atonement idea. He, yeah. He didn't spare anything, but he gave him up for us all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the limited atonement is just like that in Calvinism, that's the one point that you just can't f- figure out how on earth to justify other than putting your place in the position of the judge, which is the one thing scripture says we're not allowed to do. Uh, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Yeah, so... And that's the point of election, right? God is the one that makes right. So if God chooses to make you right, that's his thing. That's your choice. It's not his choice. So who will bring any charge against God's elect? Well, me. I condemn me. And that me is false. And that me is an illusion. And that charge against myself won't stand. So, you know, the wonderful logic here is when you condemn yourself, Paul is asking this question, who the hell do you think you are? If God has justified, who are you to, who are you to condemn? And if you're like me, that's one of the hardest things to come to terms with, that I really can't judge myself. I've already been judged. And really all of my sins are bad judgments that I can't fix with new judgments. I just have to surrender them at the cross and watch them evaporate, watch them fade away because they are illusions. And I'm also reading this in the background of this narrative of election towards being uh, representative, somehow a representative of God's grace to the world. And so, you know, I think you've discovered this. If, if, If you present yourself as a representative of God's unlimited effectual grace for the whole world, there, there might be some who will condemn you. There have been some who have condemned you, Mm -hmm. but you don't need to worry about people bringing those charges against you because it's God who justifies. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've thought of it in that way too. Yeah. And then by forgiving those that condemn you, you go on the offensive and you use the, I mean, ultimately forgiveness is a weapon because and that's the wild thing by being and paul's going to say this you know later on in romans when you're kind to your enemy you heap burning coals on their head why because Mm -hmm. forgiveness is is judgment like we were talking about right that's why it doesn't make any sense for me to get all charged up and ramped up against somebody because they've accused me because i'm a universalist in some way or they're upset with me about that well that that would be the ultimate irony yeah right right so exactly because you the the, you're a the truth is a gift so once you claim that you you know that this is my idea yeah then you're you've gone down the wrong path you've started walking into the darkness uh verse 34 who then is the one who condemns no one christ jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of god 
and is also interceding for us. You know, I tell people that really want to hang on to this idea of endless conscious torment that it's a, it's a really terrifying idea because somehow the measure you give is going to be the measure you receive in some sense. Like that's going to come come back on you. That unforgiveness is unforgivable and that condemnation is condemned. And th- that's, I think that's, that's the painful process of, of dying to yourself. But I go, the, the most dangerous thing you can do as I read scripture is to walk around condemning people. And I think Paul is, if I'm imagining writing to this Roman community in Rome, who is trying to represent this message that uh, he's telling them, don't worry about being condemned, Um, uh, that Christ is interceding, is interceding Mm -hmm. for you. So Mm -hmm. if I think of this in a pastoral setting too, he's writing to people who by taking up this message in their context are exposing themselves to judgment and danger. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that leads us to the next verse, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think that the the interesting thing is that, well, in some sense, there's, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. It's always working. And yet, in my illusion... I'm, I can separate it by believing, I can separate myself by believing the lie. So he's right there, he's with me, but my ego keeps me from looking at him, keeps me from surrendering to him, acknowledging him. Uh, verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yeah, this is so cool because... I think it's easy for people to think, you know, Paul is being Pollyanna and they'll look at, at Christians as being Pollyanna. But Paul chooses to quote the most depressing, really, of all Psalms, Psalm 44. It's the one Psalm where, I don't, can't remember if David wrote it or whoever wrote it. It's just all like, God, we're getting slaughtered. We're getting slaughtered. Just help us. And where are you? And that's kind of how the Psalm ends. And I think it's fascinating because it's part of Israel's songbook. So like God is going, I know you feel this way. So I want you to, to tell me about it. So Paul's acknowledging that this world is painful and we feel forsaken in this world. Uh, and yet God has not forsaken us. He's still, he's still with us. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because the word translated uh, "no," um, it, it should be probably translated "but" or maybe "yes" and "no." Um, let's see. I was looking. I wrote some things down here that, uh, yeah, it's this unusual. Is the word "Allah" or can mean "rather"? So I think Paul is saying yes. Um, well, and this is important because I, I do think we modern American Christians like to read. This is saying, no, we are not led as sheep to the slaughter. Um, You know, Jesus died, so we don't have to die. But what Jesus is, I think what Jesus is saying, no, we really are sheep led to the slaughter. We really do have to die. And we're going to die with Jesus. So his 37 should be, yes, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And no, this will not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's going to walk 
we're, none of us are going to die alone. He's going to die. He's going to die with us. Um, and then in all these things, we are super conquerors through him who loved us. So I love the realism of this because there's kind of a, I don't know, sometimes uh, people will get into a weird name it, claim it kind of deal where you just imagine what you want and God will do it for you. Well, that's that's ultimately true. But first you have to die. First you have to, yeah, you have to lose your old self, lose the body and die with Jesus and rise with Jesus. Okay, and uh, I'll, I'll just conclude. I'll read both the last two verses together. Verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep, I think he's just saying... He's going to pull this thing off. And then it's interesting to know that the next three chapters then are the chapters that people use to say really terrifying things about God. But Paul is dealing with his last argument against the truth of this statement. And he's, you know, he's going to talk about Israel and all sorts of fascinating things. But I always, uh, I always struggle when I uh, read that, you know, I read the word us. Well, who's, who is, who is us? And, and so what the way I've learned to think about this is that in, in what's, what's going on in Paul's mind here is that is us equals covenant partners, God's covenant partners for the salvation of all, which is God's ultimate mission. So on the one hand, the us is about that called out elect community but then on the other hand, the us is for all of us because the whole purpose of God to be fulfilled through God's called out community is the salvation of all as part of the restoration of all creation. And to me, once I understood that, then I was able to make sense of all the election talk and all the election language and then see how that fit in with God's overall purposes. And of course, at the very end, at the very end of this whole argument that we'll get to when we finally talk about Romans 11 is that, well, God has consigned all or put all in disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Yeah. That's his choice, his election. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, you know what, the, what I think is so funny about Paul, you <laughs> know, it's every now that it just occurs to me, like Paul is writing to this letter to people he doesn't know. He doesn't know who's sitting though. And they'll read this letter publicly. He doesn't know who's sitting there and he freely uses the word us. So he's certainly not too worried. I mean, I remember hanging around people that used to be, well, you know, you sure don't want to tell people they're saved if they're not. Well, Paul <laughs> didn't seem to have any problem with that. He just said us, whoever's listening. I just said us. Jesus didn't seem to have any problem with that. He said, call him our dad. Um, and he just said it. So the, the biblical authors have this really in, seems to be there if they if they don't believe in the ultimate reconciliation of all people back to god the father they sure are sloppy with their pronouns they just throw them around really loosely but but in, and they're not saying that faith doesn't matter they're saying faith is vitally vitally important it's just that god is the one who creates faith in each of his children okay well we have made it through romans 8 that was a that was a long conversation there is a there is a lot, there is a lot there. And uh, I appreciate that your uh, 
preaching through it. And I encourage people to go and you can go to the website and you can see the sermons, which is important because there's some visuals that are in the sermons that if you don't, you don't get, sometimes I'm listening to the podcast and you're playing a clip of something and I hear the music and I know I'm not seeing the, yeah, the yeah. visual. Then you usually come back and you explain the visual. Yeah. Anyway, I to myself, Hey, David's listening to the stinking. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> about that, so, yeah. But, but, it's, if, but if they go to relentless love.org, that's the best place for finding all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I also think it's nice for us to just get the chance to just, you know, just walk through it together verse by verse it takes it takes a long time to do it but to me it it kind of helps us stay in the flow of Paul's thinking as we're as we're trying to really pay attention to what he's meaning and and uh and what he's saying so uh, i kind of uh, i imagine that we're going to get to uh, i'm i'm just looking forward to Romans 11 but we got to go through Romans 10 and 11, which is which is a valley that has discouraged lots of people. Yeah, well, I'm excited to do that because it thrills me now because I just think to see the gospel all over the thing. So, yeah, okay. if, you take, if you take it seriously and you go back into the Old Testament verses Paul is quoting, it'll blow your brains in a wonderful way, blow your mind in a wonderful way. Okay, well, we will. Uh, so next time we're going to go, let's see, Romans 9. Uh, we'll head through Romans 9 and 10. The payoff is going to be Romans 11, but there will be more more jewels and more. Oh, no, uh, there's rubble. payoff in 9, 10, and 11, I think. But okay. yeah, the grand finale is 11.32, I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thanks, David. All right, Peter. Well, thanks again for spending the time with us. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.